If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking a guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. There you go. That'll get up every. Let me get everybody at the Legion up dancing today, won't it? All right, that's uh, where are we now? Uh, number 181. Bob Seger is on Rolling Stone. Uh, their top 200 singers of all time. Coming in at 181 is uh, Bob Seger. There you go. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. The gang's all here. So, uh, boy, lots happen. You know, as soon as they take a day off, it seems like something. Um, you know, I'm usually sitting on the sidelines. Um, you know, throwing in plays. Because I can't stand to when something, you know, other times it's boring and other times it's, it's, it's great news days. And, uh, this week, one of those. So lots of stuff going on. And, uh, and, and we're going to try to touch on as much as of it, uh, of it as we can over the course of, uh, the day. And then I'm off for another couple of days because, uh, as you may or may not know, if I may have talked about you or talked about it with you on the show, is that I have, you know, severe hearing issues. And, in, in, in other words, like none at all. So, uh, which is why you also hear feedback on the show and, uh, and Wilk gets very mad at me because my headphones are cranked. Anyway, I got to go in and get a procedure done tomorrow. So uh, anyway, so we'll see where that goes. And uh, maybe you want to hear me say, huh? As many times, um, um, you know, as uh, before. Also, uh, yesterday, uh, I took the day off to take my son to a Raptors game. That is one of those bucket list things. I know uh, we've been to, to various things, but uh, he's not a big basketball guy. But boy, is he ever now. And uh, and we uh, went to see a Raptors game uh, and they won last night against the Bulls. And it was an absolutely fabulous experience. And uh, one of the highlights was hooking up with Ron Foxcroft, who, um, you know, he's part of the officiating team he's uh does replay stuff and whatever and 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 whatever and anyway so uh he's there like holding fort commanding everybody just like he does with everything it's amazing uh to see him at work and what he does but what a tremendous experience and uh you know the raps were victorious last night so and and my son and i got to cross one of those things off our bucket list all right uh there you go lots going on uh that we want to get to uh over the course of the day and and uh, it'll be fascinating to see where this goes as it all sort of feathers out. But um, uh, we were talking on Monday about uh, the prime minister being questioned. There's all sorts of stuff coming in now, whether it's the Globe and Mail or Sam Cooper from right here at Global News. Uh, he's heavily involved, along with uh, Robert Fife at the Globe and Mail. And, and we've been talking to them for months and years about this. And that is interference from the Chinese Communist Party in uh, Canadian life in, in various ways. And uh, it seems that the Prime Minister has backed himself into a corner when a reporter asked him the other day uh, simply about an MP and the allegations against uh, election interference and such. And and the Prime Minister started started uh, playing the race card. And, and you know, it, it's just it's just so frustrating and it's so um, um, uh, I'll, I'll let you 
interpret it any way that you would like. But anyway, I, I find it extremely frustrating that uh, whenever you know we accuse or ask or question something that China has done, that both they and now our prime minister uh, accuses of racism or or the journalist of, of racism or the media of racism when this is not anything to do with uh, Chinese Canadian immigrants who much like many immigrants have come here to build a better life. This is about the Chinese Communist Party and it always has been. And now that people are asking questions about the Prime Minister's involvement and the donations to uh, the Trudeau Foundation, which is another aspect of all of this, uh, in, in which we're now hearing reportedly that uh, allegedly uh, donations were made through various other people from the Chinese Communist Party to uh, the Trudeau organization. And, of course, when people are yelling about inquiries and, and such, um, they kind of go mum on the word today. Today, the, uh, the prime minister is in uh, British Columbia to, you know, um, talk about something else that's going on out there. So uh, it's fascinating how this is all developed. It's fascinating how his denial and then uh, playing the race card has, has certainly turned this discussion, especially when we're hearing what we're hearing from um, not only respected journalists, but also uh, the reporting they're getting from uh, intelligence organizations such as C- uh, CSIS, who we've had commenting about that, uh, former members on this show. So uh, it, it's, you know, sunshine, you know, uh, the best disinfectant, as they said, but uh, it'll be fascinating to see where this goes uh, moving forward. All on the heels, <laughs> all of a sudden we're talking about TikTok, and my kids are just like, they've disowned me because, uh, you know, yeah, whatever, Dad, yeah, whatever. Uh, but obviously the U.S. government, now the Canadian government, now organizations looking at getting TikTok off of their uh, devices, especially those uh, corporate. And oddly enough, TikTok today announces daily time limits uh, in order to keep your kids safe. Because TikTok, and amongst all of this discussion about government agencies dropping them off their devices, they just want to say to you, we're looking after the kids. Here's a, an interesting report on what TikTok is now doing as of today or soon. Hold on, you've been scrolling for way too long now. If you were under 18, you're now going to have to enter a passcode if you scroll on TikTok for more than an hour. TikTok says it forces teens to make an active decision to spend more time on the app, though it can be disabled. Screen time is just one of a number of troubles for the Chinese app at the moment. Federal employees have less than four weeks to delete it on their government phones over fears that it could be used for foreign influence campaigns or spying. TikTok's CEO is set to address all this on Capitol Hill later this month. Mike Dubusky, ABC News. All right. Now, if that doesn't turn the kids against us, what will? <sighs> this is a sort of fight going on in my household and will be for the next, uh, uh, well, until we figure out where it's going, I guess. The kids uh, want their M- MTV, Scott. They want their MTV. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I'm like thinking, where is the great entrepreneurial company? Is it Facebook? Is it Meta? Whoever the heck they are now. Where's the company that's coming in that's going to replace this? Because right now, you can see what's happening. The end is near for TikTok in some form or another. Certainly not in the way that it once was. Certainly not being used by politicians anymore. So what's next to replace it? Who's designing that? Who's there ready? Hey, kiddies. 
TikTok's old news. Look at what we got here. I mean, come on. How long before that happens? I'm surprised we haven't heard about it already. All right, enough of that. 3.15, full newscast coming up at the bottom of the hour with Jen McQueen. She's got a sneak peek for us now, some traffic and weather as well. Good afternoon, Jen. What are you looking at? You might remember we talked about uh, the Purse Project on the show a while ago, and just one of the many um, um, great... Uh, you don't want to use the word organic, but I guess I just did. Uh, but but certainly uh, based at the at at the street level and something that we can all do, something simple we can all do in order to help, and has enough of um, uh, a uniqueness to it that it gets our attention and it raises our awareness to something that you probably don't think about. Uh, to talk about Purse Project, let's bring in Jill McKellar and Gayla Matos, the Purse Project Networks, and with us now. Jill and Gayla, thanks for the time. I hope you're both doing well. We are. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for having us back. So uh, you can each take this, take these questions whichever way you want, but let's first of all tell everybody what this is. What is the Purse Project? So the Purse Project is an organic uh, organization, as you mentioned, and our mission is uh, to collect a purse, fill it with personal care items and a card of blessing and donate it to a woman in need. And we're uh, based in Ontario, uh, mostly in the Holton Hamilton area and the Niagara area, although we did expand this year and we'll chat a bit about that later. And uh, we really want to bless women in need in our community. As you said, uh, this is now the Purse Project Network, but obviously it started somewhere. How did this come about? How, how, how was this call answered? Uh, Scott, this initially started back in 2016 with two other friends, not us, uh, and they started it in the Niagara region, and mm -hmm. it grew quite quickly for them and really started taking off. And then we heard about it in 2018 and started getting involved with them by providing what we call cards of blessing, which are handmade, handwritten cards of encouragement. Then one goes in every purse. And then these two uh, friends who started it decided they it was just taking too much of their time away from their uh, entrepreneurial businesses. And so they were going to step down and we stepped in. So in January 2020, we took over the directorship of it and have been running it since then. And has grown. I mean, that, that's what's great. I mean, and this, you know, basic idea has obviously caught on. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, this year, uh, we actually broke 10,000 purses since 2016 wow. that have been donated. So we're pretty excited about that. All right. So let's talk about the purse, the objective here, uh, what you want everybody to do. Well, what we'd like to do now, well, first of all, we'd like to say a huge thank you to mm -hmm. everybody who uh, donated to our Big Four campaign last year. Uh, we collected uh, 1,770 purses, and uh, obviously we couldn't do that without the amazing people of Ontario. So huge thanks uh, to them. Uh, and then we'd like to say we'd like to do better this fall. So uh, we'd like to suggest that it, people start collecting uh, goods now to put in the purses. Go through your closet now and see if you've got a, a fabulous purse uh, that's very gently used in great condition. And then when you do your shopping, just pick up um, 
some extra products. We have a list on our Facebook page, uh, the Purse Project Network. You can go to that right now, see the list of um, personal care items that we'd like to include in the purse and just start collecting now so it's not a big um, expense in November. Scott, the other thing we'd really love to do is to um, expand our horizons and our reach. And part of that is through you guys and you promoting it on your on your uh, talk show and your website and so on, which we're grateful for. But we'd love to get in to talk to businesses that maybe want to do this as with their employees or community mm. groups or church groups that would like to know more about it and how could they get involved in the fall doing a campaign with their membership. Um, and so we can, we would love to use the rest of this year up until the fall to really start promoting it and into other areas. So uh, obviously, and a brilliant idea. I mean, and that's why it's catching on. That's why people, that's why you're expanding your network and such. But, uh, and, and simple, uh, very simple to do, as you just explained with the old person, just as you go to the grocery store, buy these items that are much needed. Uh, you talked about the card. Talk about that element of this. So that's also um, a great way for people to become involved. Uh, we make uh, the cards. They are handmade cards. Uh, some of us who love to do that uh, do it, but we can also supply kits to groups um, who'd like to do it. We can come in, bring the kits, show them what we do. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's it's really fun. And then if people don't really want to make cards, but they just like to write in them, we have a list of suggested messages. They could contact us, collect some blank cards, write in them, and return them to us. So it's another way of becoming involved. And we'd also like to give a shout out to um, those women's groups, retired teachers organizations, other women's groups who did get involved last year and uh, supplied us with hundreds of cards, which was fantastic. What has this been like through the pandemic for this, uh, for this uh, network and the project moving forward? Well, it, we didn't know what to expect, obviously, as nobody did. And being that we took it over January 2020, it was like, oh, yeah. great, now what? Um, but really, we actually kept growing through the pandemic. Our numbers of donations in the fall each of the year, year of the pandemic just kept growing, um, which was great because, as we all know, the need was growing as well. Um, so we did not see any impact from the pandemic at all. Um, this year, we may have seen a small impact uh, with the economy being more everything more expensive this year, mm. um, but we still managed to get over 1,700 purses, which is phenomenal. All right. It's called the Purse Project and the Purse Project Networks. You can find out more about them online. Jill McKellar and Gayla Matos with us. Uh, a great idea that just keeps growing. Good luck and, um, and best of luck to you in this year's campaign. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. A couple of cool things to uh, talk about, including um, some neat marketing in and around the travel chaos that... Uh I shouldn't laugh, man. If you're stuck in line, it's uh, it's hell uh, with your life packed in your suitcase and uh, your week off hoping for the best. Uh, also, and uh, where the prime minister finds himself uh, this week, let's bring, uh, bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. Before we get to the fun stuff and, and what Corona is doing um, uh, it, to try to ease the uh, the tension of, of travel, uh, interesting article uh, on the CTV News uh, site. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's irrelevant. Uh, it's simply just showing how uh, the tune and the, the, the timing has changed for the prime minister. Don Martin says the Trudeau tipping point is within sight. Uh, a couple of really big, massive PR uh, situations for the prime minister, whether uh, it's uh, the Roxham Road uh, situation with the border that now the United States is complaining about, or uh, allegations of uh, election interference uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, including one of his MPs, and when questioned, he brings up racism, which I found that to be uh, quite divisive. Um, asking a question is one thing, and, and, and playing the race card seems to be the position that he's in right now. What are your thoughts on where the Prime Minister has found himself in the last few weeks? You know what I have found, and you probably found this too, although you have no love loss for Justin Trudeau, that's fine, um, is that his tone has taken a decisive shift. You know, when we hear the Prime Minister speak, he is often very breathy. Sometimes he's sure of what he's saying. Sometimes he's unsure. But you know who we're getting now? We're kind of getting authoritarian Justin. We're getting angry Justin and very pointed Justin and taking on hecklers Justin. And this tone, like we're, let's talk optics here because listen, this is what we're all talking about in politics, no matter what the issue is, right, Scott? You know, this tone, it leads me to believe that this is going to be the uh, the Justin Trudeau that we see on the campaign trail. And like anything else, what every political party tries to do is that they f- they float these trial balloon narratives um, to see how they land in the press, to see how they land in the public, and the, and the way they are also delivered. I've never heard uh, Prime Minister Trudeau be so angry in in his all his responses. Mainly when he talks, there it's more of a conciliatory conciliatory tone. Not this time. That being said, he is dealing with two very very hot topics, uh, specifically the one with Chinese interference, which they say never had any any impact. You know, I think at this point, Scott, it's really up to the op- to opposition to really make the most of this and do what they can if they're going to do anything with respect to damaging reputation. I did listen to the clip where Prime Minister Trudeau did invoke, well, you know, um, uh, sort of a racist uh, trope by saying, you know, how dare we go after this one MP just because he happens to be Chinese. I also think that probably, you know, he's also thinking of who his uh, voter base, too, is. So, you know, when you come out with these initial messages, even if you happen to be wrong and we're not we don't know if he is or he isn't. But, you know, he's erring on the side of, well, this is a demographic that supports me. So, first of all. I've looked at the facts and this is what we find. But secondly, my message is going to be a little bit more uh, strong in tone because he's what he's also doing, Scott, is he's leveraging on this sort of plethora of Asian hate that has been growing yeah. since the early days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the amount of uh, insults and attacks that this community has felt. So, you know, when you look at this sort of in total and you look at this allegation as sort of the cherry on top or in his his case, maybe the straw that broke the camel's back, I can see the line. I can see the narrative line that led up to this. 
Um, it's interesting, though, because, and as we all know, it's not the race here that's raising the red flags. It's security intelligence saying that there's something going on here that we need to be investigating. But you brought something up a few weeks ago when we were discussing all of this and the divisiveness of this prime minister. And you know I, I there's no love loss here. I just believe, and, and for me, it's not political. It's not political at all. I voted for all three parties. It's just that he's an incredibly divisive man. And as you pointed out one time, anybody who doesn't see things or whatever one way all gets put into the same silo, whether it's the convoy people, the anti Vaxxers, uh, or anybody who thinks that, you know, uh, a journalist who asks a question about intelligence is racist or branded racist. So um, is the public not figuring this out? You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think that really sort of still depends whether what uh, political camp you fall into, Scott, and, and, and you articulated that before I answered the question. So, you know, when I actually went onto Twitter and looked at what are people saying about Justin Trudeau, you know, the haters will always be there, but the, but the people who like him are, or who are impressed with him, uh, usually who don't say anything are kind of coming out in droves saying, well, I'm glad he's my prime minister. I'm glad of the tone that he's taking. This is the type of person that I I want leading the country. So, you know, all of this kind of plays into, you know, you get this positive reinforcement and political watchers and his cabinet, his people around him are looking at this every day and thinking, okay, this is playing well. Let's stay on this tone. And don't forget, you know, when you sort of take the CBC to task and everybody thinks that the CBC has a love affair and vice versa with Justin Trudeau, this kind of like upsets that apple cart. So it kind of takes off the table, you know, if Pierre Pauly ever goes after Justin Trudeau and says he's in bed with the CBC and vice versa, they can point to this fact and say, well, in fact, no, we're not. So, you know, I'd like to think, you know, we would like to think that all these answers are organic and that they tend to elicit some sort of uh, organic empathy or uh, or disgust. But really, I mean, everything is so politically crafted, Scott, and thought out about, you know, who's going to be, you know, what the long game is with everything, that it's, you know, it's hard as the public. I mean, you're always going to believe what you're going to believe, but if you absolutely have distaste for one party versus another, it doesn't matter what they say. Uh, I don't know, I, and I agree with everything you're saying, but I think evidence is mounting to the contrary, whether it's the Globe and Mail or Sam Cooper from Global. It is, you know, I mean, it is. I mean, the the report you quoted that you know that said that it didn't change the outcome of the election. Well, no one ever said it did change the outcome. What they're talking about is interference uh, whatsoever. So, uh, you know, again. Um, as ceases and, and whatever, all of this information comes out. It is what it is, um, and, and the fact yeah, that you but, can't you can't politically thought, dance around it yeah. anymore. You know what? Let me just say one thing. I think that you know when we talk about election interference, we've been hearing about this since um, 2016. Uh, with Trump and again when Biden won too about how you know Russia tries to uh, manipulate elections for you know with th their own benefits so you know Canadians are very used to hearing about um, election manipulation so when you look at you know and it's very interesting the point you brought up you know they're not necessarily talking about well nothing happened it, you know that but that's the narrative trope that they're taking that's what Canadians are hearing are is a large percentage digging into this and going well why aren't we looking at the problem in the first place Mm, maybe not. Yeah. But are they well, listening it, to the end game? 
more likely. The report that you were talking about that the, the safety minister was talking about the other day uh, was, in fact, we find out if you read the Globe uh, that uh, the author of that was the head of the foundation, the Trudeau Foundation, when that alleged one million dollar check was written. So again, I mean, I think people have pointed to this for a great deal of time, and I think the political rhetoric is falling to the sides, and I think the sun is starting to shine. That's my interpretation of it all. I don't yeah, think you can. I don't think you can. Put- I would say that if the opposition had their act together and that they didn't, I'm not defending either party here, but honestly, this is what I see. You know, when you have your own MPs, you know, meeting with uh, a divisive figure from German politics and say that you didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's digging in the weeds. That's going way deep in the weeds to find some ammo, Alyssa. That really is. And let's not forget the opposition is not serious. The opposition is not ruling the country. And these people are fringe, are fringe elements, are fringe elements of the party, just like the environment environmental minister is, but I digress. An always great one, and it ends on a fiery tone. Alyssa Freeman is with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It was just too agreeable, Scott. I, I know. Go for it. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right. I was never really any good at him, but I loved uh, science fairs. And when I was a kid and in school, I remember a local uh, public school and uh, my sisters were older than I. So, I, you know, I was a younger kid going to the opposite science fair, an open house or whatever. But anytime you got an exploding volcano or uh, anything that would fizz or smoke or blow up. Oh, if you, you could blow something up to show the kids what the heck was even better. And uh, so it's great to see that that is all still alive and well and obviously happening now happening now a lot more than it used to considering the last couple of years. Saturday, we'll see almost 200 students compete in the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board's 40th Annual uh, System Science and Engineering Fair. To talk more about all of that, Mark Trotta is with us, co-chairperson, System Science and Engineering Fair, and with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So I'm, you know, going to talk about how I ask you to talk about how the science fair has changed over the year, uh, over the years. But one thing I can automatically see is science and engineering fair. So describe what this is to those that may not know. Absolutely. So you know, on thank you for having us on behalf of myself and my co-chair Marie Prada. It's awesome to have this opportunity to to talk. But um, you mentioned the volcano and some of those things that happened that happened in the past. But uh, Bear has really, really extended with the technology and computers and robotics. Uh, we're doing wonderful uh, projects with uh, complex matters such as mechanical circuitry, uh, infrared lights. Uh, but the fun stuff is still there. We'll have projects like cat and um, cat activated temperature sensors and elephant toothpaste. So still a lot of fun in science. <laughs> oh, well, even the robotic stuff. Oh, my goodness. That would be just incredible. Anyway, so uh, tell us the process. How do they get uh, from one stage to into the fair and perhaps different grades that are involved? How do you do this? So our fair is open from grades four to twelve. Um, we encourage uh, schools to have their own local uh, in-school fair. Um, right. Some do, some don't. Uh, but it's open for all of those um, who uh, either participated or registered through their schools. Um, all of those projects will show up on Saturday. They'll be judged. 
uh, in one of three areas, depending on uh, what they've uh, produced. They'll either have a study, innovation, or experiment. Uh, and from our fair, we feed into BASA. That's the Bay Area uh, System Science, Bay Area um, Science Fair. Um, and that's for our intermediate students, those in grade seven and above. So uh, obviously, uh, local schools doing this and then coming together and, and to this. So is this everybody coming together at one location for one giant fair? Absolutely. This is the, the culmination for us as the board where all of our schools will be celebrating their achievements and coming together at Bishop Ryan. Uh, they will put the uh, the best that, they, that those schools have to offer on display uh, and they will, um, will be judged. And we, we just a, it's just a great event. It's it's, it's so much fun. And the, the excitement and kids, uh, the way that they present those projects and the pride they have really make one of the, um, one, I think one of the best events that we have all year long. And further proof, you just relate to the kids, boy, they, they've certainly got the capability and the ability to learn. So what happens if you win this fair or you, you place in your category? Is there something beyond this? So, um, like I mentioned, so we do have prize for some of our top, uh, top students, but all of our intermediate students are invited um, through their schools uh, to participate in BASA, which is the uh, regional fair. And this has been going on for 40 years. Um, um, what's the... What's the trick to keeping these going? Um, as you said, obviously, it's evolved a lot over the years. How do you keep the kids interested? I think uh, really relying on a lot of the teachers and uh, the science and technology that's happening in the schools really in itself uh, sparks a lot of the interest. And then uh, it's it's making it available to them. So the more schools that continue to make themselves available uh, to the science, uh, the bigger the bigger it grows. Um, we have had, as you are you alluded to, we had a little bit of a break there. We did have a virtual fair, um, but we're back at it. We're live again, and we're really looking forward to an in-person fair. All right, Bishop Ryan, this Saturday, almost 200 students competing for the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board's 40th annual uh, System Science and Engineering Fair. Uh, support the kids. Mark, thanks for the time. Good luck with all of this moving forward, and thank you for all you do for the kids. Thank you so much, and every kid that comes is a winner. The new 28-member Northern Border Security Caucus is focused exclusively on what it calls a largely unnoticed national security concern, which happens to be the longest international border in the world. From October through January, the first four months of fiscal 2023, U.S. Customs and Border Protection recorded 55,736 encounters at or near the Canada-U.S. border with people deemed inadmissible. That was more than twice the nearly 24,000 encounters that took place during the same four months the previous year, and already halfway to the 109,535 reported during the entire 12-month stretch of fiscal 2022. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. Uh, you know, this is something that we really don't talk about uh, until it's a problem in the news or someone dies in a field in the middle of Edmonton, uh, Alberta somewhere, or, or or there's some other kind of tragedy. We've been talking about Roxham Road, a hole in the fence in Quebec for a 100 years now. Uh, and it's all really nice to say, well, you're being Canada, you're letting people in that, that need help and such. Um, but there's also people that are legitimately lining up who are being bypassed here. And that is 
beyond the point. The point is, is this has become an industry, a cottage industry where illegal people are trafficking, are trafficking people and getting paid a, a tremendous amount of money to do it. And nobody seems to be doing anything or caring about it because we're such a great, caring country. Uh, the Roxham Road is overflowing Quebec as a result of what's happening in Quebec. They're busing people to Niagara Falls. Wait a sec. Isn't this happening in Florida? Or they're busing them to New York? And how are we screaming about that when we point to our friends in the United States? Is the same thing happening here? Let's bring in the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, who's uh, heading into their tourist season and wondering where they're going to put everybody. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So I don't know how I capsulize what's happening in Niagara, but what's the problem specifically that you're facing? Well, this started out as a pretty innocuous thing last summer when the federal government reached out to our staff and said they'd be placing people in 87 rooms in Niagara Falls that were seeking asylum. And they asked us not to talk about it, keep it under the radar. It was something that, you know, was going to happen and no one would talk about. Well, it didn't take long before they went to 300 rooms and then 687 and then 1,500. And now we're around 2,000 hotel rooms and we've got several thousand asylum seekers in our community. And we're happy to, as you say, you know, be the, the Canadians that always help and lend a helping hand. And and I know we're a, we're a nation of immigrants, but it's starting to have an impact on our community in ways that none of us are prepared for. I know they came here because of our inventory of hotel rooms. As the number one leisure destination, we have a lot of hotel rooms. We're used to handling a lot of people, but they usually come and they go. They don't stay and now it's having an impact on our food banks, our social services, our schools. Uh, there's a lot of people for a not that large community. We're only 95,000 people. Despite our reputation for hosting millions, we're not that big of a community. It's, um, uh, you know, it's one thing, as you said, to be helpful as a Canadian and, and do your part and, and, and help those that are in need. But what's happening here is people who are coming through illegally. And then because, uh, of course, there's capacity issues in Quebec, they're being shipped to, to other provinces and such. Do you think people realize, uh, Jim, that this, it's not necessarily about people looking for, uh, for, for a better life. It's also a thriving cottage industry. There's, there's people making a tremendous amount of money trafficking people. Well, you're exactly right. And unfortunately, and I know the, the vast majority are good people leaving bad situations, but there are the other element that gets integrated that thrive and take advantage of situations like this. You're exactly right. And, and we're even told that Roxham Road, one of the reasons a lot of them cross at Roxham Road, despite the fact that they can get in illegally, a lot of them have no ID or they're told to discard their ID so we have no way of knowing their backgrounds. And some of them don't all have great backgrounds. So they're in our community. The residents are asking me, you know, what kind of people are they? Well, the first thing we know is most do not speak English. They're from countries all over the world. Uh, they're trying to do skills assessments to see if they can fill some of the jobs in the area, but it's difficult when there's a massive backlog of English as a second language instruction. A lot of them don't speak it. Uh, the schools, I was speaking with some of the schools yesterday. The kids are saying they're not being fed, yet the federal government's telling me they give $75 per day for three meals for every hotel room. So I don't know where it lies, but what I do know is, and I expressed this to Sean Frazier, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, Citizenship, and I said, Minister, we need to be part of the discussion. We need to be part of the discussion so we can be part of the solution. 
and we need a seat at the table. Uh, we need you guys to start writing some checks for the impact you're having on our food banks and our soup kitchen and our Ontario Works and social services. And we need to be privy to the plan. And I don't know what the plan is or if there is a plan. And I said, and I know it's probably evolving. And it, even if there's plan A, plan B, and plan C, let's discuss it so we can help you because I can tell them. And I told them there are challenges coming. And you alluded to it earlier, Scott. Tourists are coming and they're going to be here in a matter of weeks. What are you going to do with all these thousands of people living in the hotel rooms right now? What, how are we going to handle it? And so we're waiting to have a seat at that table. And it seems, uh, Jim, that everybody thought this would go away. But as I mentioned, and it's queue jumping. I mean, it's not a humanity, a humanitarian issue as much as it is queue jumping. And there's money being made. This has become a business, an underground business that mainstream media just doesn't seem to pay attention to. Well, you're exactly right. And I'll tell you when they're going to start paying attention, when some of the stories become apparent. And I'll give you an example. You know, before any of this started, we already had a housing and affordability crisis. And I know we're not unique. Countries all around the world and cities all across this country are dealing with the exact same thing with the homeless and the people struggling to find a, a roof over their head. We've got all sorts of challenges before any of this happened. Now, of course, and we're dealing with the supply and demand model of economics, if there's going to be even less supply, the price goes up even further, makes it even more difficult to attain housing. Well, now I received calls last week from some local homeless people who typically in the winter, our social services, our public health will put them in some of our hotels in the wintertime who have now been evicted to make room mm. for asylum seekers. Jim so, Diodati with yeah. us, mayor of Niagara Falls, uh, talking about uh, the immigration system, which uh, is now being felt in Niagara Falls, the situation uh, in Quebec and Ruxham Road, and they need some help to deal with all of this, and we at least need to be acknowledging what the heck is going on. Jim, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck with this. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots going on in the world of politics. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies. He is with us now. Daniel, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. All right, Daniel, lots on uh, the prime minister's plate in the past week, whether it's um, allegations of, of Chinese interference in election campaigns. Uh, Sam Cooper of Global and the Glo uh, Globe and Mail have been doing some pretty extensive reporting on this for, for weeks and months now, um, and then pointing to a specific MP within uh, uh, his party, obviously, and then a, a $1 million donation uh, from a Chinese businessman put to the Trudeau Foundation foundation apparently reimbursed from the Chinese Communist Party. How does the prime minister deal with this moving forward? He's going to have a tough time dealing with this one. Uh, he has a history of where he's able to kind of dock and dodge scandals, but I think this one's going to land right in his face and he's going to have to be very careful. The best course is honesty, but sometimes in politics, that's not the best one for your political future. Uh, were you surprised that he used race when being questioned by a journalist in regard to the red flags that CSIS had been talking about that had been leaked? Uh, to be honest with you, a little bit, because I think that CSIS had very reasonable grounds to bring this, and the leaks seemed very reasonable. And it wasn't about race, but that's something that this government has done a few times to kind of dodge it. Even ahead of the prime minister speaking, one of his parliamentary secretaries came out and said, this is a racist accusation if this person was not. Uh, of Asian descent, they would not be 
charged like this. If they were white, this wouldn't be the case. But in short, not surprised by it. I think they were trying to dodge it early on, and they thought that might work, and it clearly didn't. Uh, the fact, and, and what stood out about this for me, Daniel, was this is exactly the excuse that the China uses whenever we question them about anything. Mm-hmm. They they claim that there's racism there. So for him to use the same excuse, does that just not tie it together? Because that's what it did for me. Uh, it's definitely not a good look for him. And I think he realizes that now. And again, these accusations, they continue to grow. So hopefully we'll get some honesty out of him soon, because if he keeps digging a hole... It's not going to look good for him at the end of the day. Uh, an inquiry, as some say call it, some say no call. He obviously decides, uh, he obviously mm-hmm. has cited on the no side. Um, is another inquiry the answer here? Well, the NDP said earlier today that they're going to push for a national public inquiry through one of the parliamentary committees in the House of Commons. But I'll be honest with you, Scott, like, that's not going to do anything. I don't think we can get together a group of parliamentarians and agree on what color the sky is, let alone finding any accusations uh, of their colleagues. So I, the only way really forwards, and if Justin Trudeau has nothing to hide, it might be doing another judicial review like he did for the convoy. It worked out well for him the first time. The person reviewing it did a fairly good job, and it was broadly well accepted. Um, uh, the safety minister, Mendoncino, was quoting a report earlier today, and, and, and or the yesterday rather, and saying basically that it didn't affect the outcome of the election. The prime minister is the prime minister. Um, is that kind of a distraction simply because nobody's, nobody's saying that? I haven't heard anybody say that it would have changed the outcome of election. They're just concerned uh, that it is, in fact, happening and perhaps should be uh, drawn into attention. And then we find out that the person responsible for this report was also head of the foundation, the Trudeau Foundation, when this alleged donation of $1 million was made. Yeah, that's kind of like having a criminal be the judge in his own trial. Yeah. Um, I don't think it really cuts, and I think when Canadians hear more about that, it's not going to pass the sniff test. But regarding the minister's comments, it should come to no shock that he's not only defending his boss, but also one of his really close and personal friends. Uh, what needs to happen is this government needs to do something instead of just trying to get away with it they if they want to be serious and they don't have anything to hide and and they fundamentally believe that they did nothing wrong then they should come clean they should launch some type of investigation to kind of get get that going because if there's nothing to hide why drag the story on any longer how do you come clean uh, or at least appear to the public that you're being transparent um when you have reports like the one i've just stated done by someone who's (laughs) involved in the scandal um what what else can be done moving forward can the prime minister put this toothpaste back in the tube uh, well first step is uh, not to appoint someone you know or close with to lead the investigation uh and absolutely right it probably did not impact the outcome of the results one or two writings wasn't going to change it but i think that's not the question at hand it's about the integrity of a democratic system so canadians are losing faith in it if they think that a foreign government is interfering that's that's a big concern so again i think going back to the judicial review i think that's probably the best course for them because that's the easiest way for a politician and politics kind of get removed from the situation and, and ability to kind of dive into the facts where do you think Canada, Canadians are on this? You know, I think of the Emergencies Act inquiry, and at the end of the day, um, you know, probably didn't meet the Emergencies Act threshold at the time or security, national security threat, but certainly was needed to clean up the mess. So at the end of the day, anything from that? Is this going to end up with the same sort of neutral, uh, uh, you know, head shrug uh, as well? Uh, where are Canadians' heads on this? I mean, there's a few of these that are piling up for the PM. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a little too early to tell on this story. I think if you already don't like the prime minister, this is just adding fuel to the fire. If you're on the side of supporting the prime minister, you're probably like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But I think what's going to be interesting in the coming days is looking at some polling opinion to see how this impacts him. Because on the surface, I think most Canadians would be pretty annoyed that a foreign government interfered with, allegedly interfered with a Canadian election multiple times. And I don't think that's a story he'll be able to get kind of a scapegoat or throw someone under the bus for. Do you think Canadians are putting together, do you think Canadians are realizing that one of the reasons he's got the position on this that he has, or taking the position on this that he has, is that his party was benefiting from this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can definitely see Canadians seeing it that way, and arguably that is the way to see it, because not only did they win a GTA riding, the, there was also some allegations of efforts to lose two rights for conservatives, which the government was able to pick up. So I think if it didn't benefit him in the way that it did, I think there might be a little bit more alarm bells going off at the prime minister's office. But right now, I think they're kind of trying to hunker down and wait honestly for something else to come out. And even that includes when the president comes later this month, that beats them to kind of distract people. All right, Daniel, I want to ask you something completely uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum. Uh, If you're Pierre Polyevra, you know, things aren't looking good for the prime minister. Many will say this is his election to to lose. The conservatives have been in that position many times. Is the pressure not on him to bring this home? What is he what does he have to do to unite? What does he have to do to not to not shoot himself in the foot here with this uh, golden opportunity? Well, shooting yourself in the foot is what conservatives do best, so I'll, I'll be cautious Absolutely. I think he, what he needs to do is just keep doing what he's doing. He needs to attack when there are big scandals like this come up, but also connect with everyday Canadians like he's doing. His approach to tour and getting outside of the Ottawa bubble and talking to real people is a great effective tool. When you see him one-on-one or even in a large group, he has something to him that's very similar to what this prime minister had. Uh, leading up to the 2015 election. So I think he has the right sauce. Let's just see if he can put the burger together this time around. Uh, There's the key question. Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. Daniel, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Franco, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Greatly appreciate it. Uh, You know, obviously what you're pointing out here is a series of tax increases that are going to happen on April 1st. So set out what's happening on April Fool's Day this year for Canadians. Well, unfortunately, the joke is again on taxpayers because in one month's time, our members of parliament are going to be taking more money out of our pockets and stuffing their own pockets with more money. Yeah, you heard that right. Here's what's happening. Come April 1, the carbon tax up, member of parliament pay up, alcohol taxes, you guessed it, also going up. I think what's really aggravating in all of this is, you know, I guess, you know, death and taxes, it's to be, uh, uh, you know, I guess just assumed to happen. But people are getting raises. MPs are getting raises through this. Yeah, death, taxes and MP pay raises seem to be the rule these days. You know, what's so frustrating to, to point that out is you would think that now, especially now when their constituents are going to the grocery store and having to make decisions like, do I get the ground beef? 
or do I get the jug of milk? In this type of context, you would think that now it should be perfectly obvious, even for politicians, that they shouldn't be giving themselves a pay raise. But unfortunately, come April 1, that'll be the fourth pay raise that our members of parliament who are supposed to be representing us will have taken since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so how much? How much are they getting as a raise? Um, uh, what are they seeing that we're not? <laughs> well, so this is just an estimate. The numbers haven't been released, but we've crunched the numbers. This pay raise come April 1 will be anywhere from an extra $5,000 for your backbencher who's collecting dust. They're also going to be collecting an extra $5,000 all the way up to an extra $10,000 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So if those numbers do come to fruition, that'll put a backbencher um, around $195,000 and Mr. Trudeau at about $390,000. Now, I can hear your listeners' blood boil in on live time right here because I'm sure they're saying to the, themselves, you know, if you're already making north of $180,000, do you really need to be giving yourselves a pay raise on the backs of the Canadians who are struggling and who you're representing. But if I could just continue this tangent for one more second, because this even downplays just how crazy uh, the tale of two pandemics has been, because since the beginning of the pandemic through to this next pay raise, the total of the four pandemic pay raises will be anywhere from $15,000 extra for a backbencher to $31,000 extra for the prime minister man uh that is hard to digest especially considering how difficult it is for families uh nowadays let's bring let's break down these actual tax increases uh and what is going to happen april 1 because we also know there's an alcohol uh, that as you mentioned all in that but let's start um uh with what is going up april 1st and break it down just a little bit say with a carbon tax yeah well that's a good place to start because i feel like gasoline prices have really been a major pain point for for many Canadians for a couple years now. Well, the carbon tax is going up to 14 cents a liter of gas. It's going up as well to 12 cents per cubic meter of natural gas, because of course we need to heat our homes in Canada as well. Now, we have heard the government trying to spin Canadians, trying to say, oh, don't worry about it. You're all, you're all getting rebates back. You should be ha happy. You should thank us. Well, hold on a second, okay? Because if you think that you could raise taxes, then skim some off the top to pay for an army of new bureaucrats and then somehow make us all better off. Well, then I have some ocean view property in Regina that I mm. want to sell you. <laughs> and, and in fact, and in fact, the government's own independent budget watchdog has showed that the Trudeau government is using magic math, has showed that the average Canadian family this year will lose out uh, between four hundred and eight hundred and fifty dollars this year, even after the rebate. So as of April 1, gas up 14 cents a liter. Bingo, like that. Up to 14 cents a liter. So it's going right. to go from 11 cents per liter carbon tax to 14 cents per liter uh, of gasoline at the pumps. All right. And obviously liquid natural gas uh, as well. All right. What's going to happen with alcohol? How to, And this is an accelerator tax, which we've talked about before, that just goes up every year. Yeah. You know, if uh, if having me on air drives you to drink, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there's another another big inflation size tax uh, hike coming here, and, and that's the uh, federal government's tax on alcohol. It's going up. 
by about 6.3%. It's an undemocratic tax. Get this, folks. Uh, Your member of parliament, they'll be collecting bigger pay, but they won't actually be voting on whether or not to increase this tax because, I don't know, I guess guess, uh, the fact that this is an undemocratic tax doesn't have too many politicians losing sleep in Ottawa. But it also underscores just how much tax we're already paying. So let's say you go to the the LCBO, you pick up, I don't know, like a case of Keith's or something like that. You're already paying about half of the price of the case of beer in tax. So we're already being taxed like crazy. And here's another uh, anti-democratic tax hike coming just around the corner. You know, and and this is a debate that is now lost, Franco, because we've talked again before about whenever there was an election campaign, there was always the chatter of sin taxes, whether it was tobacco or alcohol or whatever uh, or whatever. Now it's just blended right in. We don't even talk about it. We don't even debate it. We don't even discuss it during a a campaign. It just happens. Yeah. Isn't that so frustrating? Um, Here's you know, there is a glimmer of hope, and I would say it's even larger than a glimmer, is that we are starting to see um, more and more politicians in the House of Commons speak out. Uh, We saw a private member's bill by Mr. Pat Kelly. I believe he's from Calgary. Don't quote me on it. I believe he's from there, and he's a Conservative member of Parliament. He brought in a private member's bill to, to end the undemocratic alcohol escalator tax. So that's good news, right? Kudos to, to Mr. Kelly. Hopefully we can see the ball rolling there even further. Um, also, too, I mean, you do have members of Parliament in the House of Commons that say and promise they will scrap the carbon tax. Of course, these days it seems like a promise is worth about uh, the same price as the piece of paper it's written on. But there is some there is some momentum. So so keep plugging away. Keep contacting your member of parliament and keep speaking out and saying this is outrageous. All right. April Fool's Day taxes up and so are MP salary. They get a raise. Uh, Franco Terrazano with his Canadian Taxpayers Federation federal director. Franco, as always, keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, there, there's lots of uh, uh, issues in regard to the prime minister, in regard, in regard in, in around the prime minister's office in the last little while, uh, specifically with interference from the Chinese Communist Party in Canadian uh, life, uh, whether it's uh, uh, election interference, alleged election in interference, uh, most recently an MP uh, of the prime minister's uh, caught or tangled up in that web, a $1 million donation to a Trudeau Foundation, um, to the Trudeau Foundation through uh, a, a businessman that was being reimbursed through the Chinese Communist Party. And um, the report that came out that the safety minister was quoting uh, just a, a day or so ago in which he said that this did not affect the election outcome in any way, which I don't think anybody has really accused anybody of or, or questioned the integrity of the election. It's just that there is interference going on. And at what time, at what point uh, do you address this to? And oddly enough, that report penned by uh, the same person who was in charge of the Trudeau Foundation when this alleged donation was even made. Uh, we're starting to see changes in what is being said, including a recent article uh, by commentator Don Martin. Uh, the Trudeau tipping point is within sight. Is that the case? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
And thanks. Hope you are, too. Your thoughts, Peter, on these latest revelations? It seems that more and more is coming out through the Globe and Mail, through Sam Cooper at Global News and such, and these uh, allegations slowly picking up steam and and gaining uh, credibility. What are your thoughts on where the Prime Minister finds himself? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a situation where, you know, the Prime Minister had been a bit bolder. We might be in a healthier situation. Uh, You you know, certainly... uh, these allegations uh, are pretty serious and make a lot of Canadians wonder about, uh, you know, how fair their elections are and how properly they're run. And uh, it would have seemed natural for the prime minister to try and get out ahead of this uh, and work with the leaders of the opposition parties to set in place, uh, you know, a some kind of independent inquiry where, you know, we could figure out, well, what has been the nature of this interference by and maybe not just China, a number of uh, different states in recent elections, and uh, what might we do about it to ensure the integrity of those elections? You know, instead he hasn't done that. He's uh, sort of hidden behind a variety of different claims, like we already have a parliamentary committee looking at this, or there's this other report that's sitting on his desk that you just mentioned by a you know, former uh, head of the Trudeau Foundation. Um, and, you know, that's going to let the opposition parties also be a bit irresponsible and I think really try to amp up the idea that somehow, you know, the the, the most recent elections, uh, you know, we have to put question marks around around them. And so I think we've really lost a chance to to work in a collaborative fashion to make sure that Canadians retain confidence in the, in their elections. Uh, do you th- many have said that over the years and, and long before these issues and long before even the global pandemic that uh, the prime minister had a soft spot for China and didn't seem to see what the rest of the world saw, whether it was the five eyes in Huawei, uh, the two Michael situations, vaccine, what have you. Uh, do you think the fact that he is uh, sort of has a laissez faire attitude about this doesn't seem to, you know, to to care too much about it because it appears that it's benefiting his party. Yeah, I mean, I think we can, we could look at it that way, but I think you also have to look at the fact that China's, you know, 1.3 billion people, a growing economy, and, you know, the Canadian business class wants to have good relationships with China. And so, you know, we had the Harper regime uh, elected in 2006 saying we're going to get tough with China, and within about three years, uh, they were doing everything possible to, to smooth relationships and, you know, went out of office having negotiated a, you know, a sweetheart trade deal. And so I think, you know, with Trudeau, you could make the case that there are ways in which, you know, from his biography (laughs) of going there as a small child with his father, and, you know, you can trace uh, a desire not to, you know, be too critical with China through his whole career. But I think that's probably less important than the big push uh, to maintain and enhance uh, trade and economic ties with China. Of course, is any Canadian government into a, a tough spot where, I mean, we're, we're familiar with this in dealing with the United States. <laughs> you know, we can't really make the United States change. We can criticize it a little, but we, you know, require uh, ongoing uh, market access uh, for economic well-being. And with China, I think it's a similar situation where any prime minister is going to be pushed, uh, you know, to stand up to China, but at the same time in a manner that won't actually 
uh, cause any kind of damage to our economic relationship. Well, we all remember at one point China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted to cozy up to, and everybody thought that they would take on our customs as opposed to, uh, for example, Hong Kong trying to reinforce their are their own. That being said, trade deals are one thing; interference uh, is another. Um, do you think Canadians are willing to put up with the interference just to have cheap Crocs? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are ways in which we probably need some kind of, you know, independent inquiry uh, to make sense of what's happening in, in our elections. Uh, because, yeah, I'm sure Canadians are not happy with that. And we should come up with uh, strategies, you know, to root out, uh, you know, a number of these different strategies that can be effective in, in having some influence in our elections. I think that's there probably where we where we need to start. Uh, you know, we can really put it on China, and uh, clearly there's some, you know, instances here. Um, but I think we should also look more broadly in terms of the ability of foreign governments to have influence over our legislature, uh, legislators and our elections. Uh, I mean, and there's even questions about why don't we ask our uh, members of parliament to uh, come clean on whether they are being paid by foreign governments, you know, which happens in many states, but not in Canada. So there's a number of ways in which across a variety of domains, we should probably be looking at our rules and seeing do they need to be modernized and tightened up as you know new tools uh, get developed to, to interfere in elections uh, in the West and uh, well, you know, globally. Peter Grape with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you for the time. Be well. And you too. All right, we've been talking about it all day. Uh, the Prime Minister finding himself in uh, a heap of uh, trouble in and around the issue of Chinese interference, the Chinese Communist Party interference in Canadian life, uh, whether it has to do with uh, election interference, which a report just came out from the Safety Minister yesterday saying it had no effect on the outcome of the election. I don't think anybody was insinuating that at all. They were merely raising the red flags that, the, in fact, uh, interference was going on, including naming one of the Prime Minister's MPs, when that was brought to the Prime Minister's attention by a journalist and asked a question uh, about this red flag, he started playing the racism card, which is extremely surprising, considering that's what China does whenever we ask them questions about uh, issues of suspicion. And further to all of this, uh, the person who wrote that report uh, that the safety minister was talking about, the person who penned that report was the person at the helm of the Trudeau Foundation when, in fact, that alleged million-dollar donation was made. So um, where the Prime Minister goes from here and how he puts this toothpaste back in the tube is uh, worth discussing. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, and is with us now. Charles, great to have you here. I've been dying to ask you about this. What are your thoughts on the situation where the Prime Minister finds himself in at this point with these accumulation of events and and then playing the race card when asked by a journalist to to explain what was going on. Well, I think that, you know, with regard to the first one, uh, I mean, the big piece of information that's come out was that that donation to the Trudeau Foundation was not from an individual, you know, a Chinese billionaire who happened to be on the, the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is the number one agency for the Chinese Communist Party's uh, United Front work department work. Let's leave that aside. But that that CSIS had monitored a telephone call which indicated that the Chinese government paid him back for the whole million dollars that went mm. into this Trudeau Foundation thing. 
And it also calls into question the earlier evidence, which is, you know, the event at which this gentleman uh, attended after he had, you know, coordinated the million dollar donation. A lot of donations were made by persons of um, Chinese origin, presumably seeing as that man was there, all of them, you know, pro pro mainland types, most likely. Uh, were they subsidized by the Chinese government in accordance with the scheme that we that was also exposed earlier in the week by the Globe and Mail, whereby people can take their their tax receipts for political donations to the Chinese embassy and be reimbursed for the part that they uh, that wasn't paid for by Scott Thompson and Charles Burton's tax dollars, mm. but which they were supposed to pay themselves. So, you know, if the prime minister was actually receiving campaign money that came from a foreign source, that also seems to me to be extremely serious. And, you know, you're really getting into the area where someone who has knowingly or not knowingly had their political campaign supported by a foreign source really has to resign. Uh, we, uh, again, have seen more and more and more of this evidence mount, and the prime minister was questioned by a journalist on this, and he brought he he brought in racism. Are you surprised he played that angle, considering, and, and this was a link for me, Charles, that's exactly what the Chinese government says when they're questioned. Oh, it absolutely plays into this rhetoric that Canada is a racist society and therefore people of Chinese origin ought to seek refuge in the motherland, which means, you know, a foreign country, the People's Republic of China under the domination of the Chinese Communist Party. And the implication is, you know, you're not really considered Canadian. And therefore, if we ask you to do something for the motherland, like engage in espionage or or make donations to a political candidate that we favor or you know come out to uh, to try and stuff a nomination meeting uh, then you'll do it so it certainly is a very very damaging kind of rhetoric and it's not one which is supported by the chinese community you know who have been trying to tell the government that they welcome this um, exposure of Chinese mm -hmm. interference because the Chinese, as we know, and as we've been talking about on this program, the Chinese government has been menacing and harassing and coercing people of Chinese origin in Canada for many years. And our government has not seen fit to do a single thing to protect them. So, I mean, you know, it's quite the opposite of what the prime minister is saying. Loyal Canadians of Chinese origin want our government to do the right thing yeah. and yeah. to act against illegal activities by a foreign government, regardless of its association with their ancestors or whatever. You know, they're Canadians. Many have said that the prime minister, and we've talked about this for years, is very saw has a soft spot for China, um, and many have thought: is he naive? Is it his his father's upbringing and, and his exposure to China at a young age? Do you think it's soft because his 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 look is soft on China because he is naive, or is it because it benefits his party? I mean, it's obvious that you know the only time they tried to interrupt conservative situations was when it looked like. Uh, the liberals may gain a majority government. They wanted a minority liberal uh, liberal government uh, in power. What are your thoughts? Well, it's a chicken or the egg problem. You know, the Chinese Communist Party, um, according to the 
Globe and Mail reports have indicated that the Liberals are the party that they're going to support, the only yeah. party in Canada that they feel upholds Chinese interests. And so, you know, did that happen first or 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 or, hmm. or was it that uh, that uh, because they, you know, because they have the Chinese Communist Party support the Liberals are soft on on China? I, I, you know, I I mean, I think there are historical reasons. I mean, certainly the puzzling attitude of um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who had such strong affection expressed in Parliament when the Chinese president came to speak to a joint session of Parliament for Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, who, you know, as we know, are guilty of enormous uh, violations of the rights of of uh, Chinese people in China at the same time as he was promoting the Canadian Charter of Rights, which is supposed to be based on protecting the rights of Canadians. You know, mm. how do you how do you square that circle where he he seems to be so supportive of a regime which which had principles diametrically opposed to the principles that inform our Canadian constitution, which is that, you know, all Canadians should enjoy f freedoms and rights. And, and, and this is what Pierre Trudeau's legacy is supposed to have been about. How do you think Canadians are viewing this? Is this too deep into the weeds for the average Canadian? And can the prime minister put this toothpaste back in the tube? Yeah, that, I mean, that does worry me that, that, uh, you know, maybe people just, don't see it as a central issue in our politics. But, you know, it seems to me that regardless of, of how it plays out politically, the fact is that we don't understand why charges have not been laid against people who have engaged in electoral financial, financial fraud, for example. You know, the people that, that got that kickback from the Chinese regime for voting the way the Chinese wanted them to vote, uh, that's, that's, violation of of canadian law why isn't the rcmp doing an investigation and and bringing people to a court of law where they can defend themselves against these very very serious allegations you know why aren't we seeing any action which suggests that our government is taking the law seriously enough that they will enforce it why have no chinese diplomats been expelled you know these are all the bottom line questions of how is it possible that the government knew about all this stuff and then chose not to to defend Canadian law and the Canadian people by taking action on it. Could it be as simple as Charles? It benefits him. It benefits his party. Well, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't think we've we've got enough information yet to say. It seems very unlikely that the prime minister had not read those reports. Uh, at least they should have passed his desk. And so the question really is, and I think one that he should be asked and respond to is after you read that stuff how come you didn't uh, you know direct your 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 people to start acting on it or you know if 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 they say oh well this doesn't fit into the category of canadian law then doesn't that call for us to get new laws in like a foreign uh, influence registry act or something like that to try and respond to these concerns because everybody who's listening to this program recognizes that what's going on is seriously wrong and should not be allowed to continue into the next election. Charles Burton with a senior fellow Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad in the McDonald-Laurier uh, McDonald Institute uh, talking about uh, China interference in Canadian life and how we are handling it all. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. He is coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. So we've got a prime minister who really isn't interested in investigating Chinese interference in uh, Canadian elections or interference in Canadian life in general. However, we are banning TikTok for the kiddies. Uh, well, at least for those on government phones and such. And then, oddly enough, today, TikTok announces that it's trying to save our kids by putting a little timing device on there so they won't spend more than, I don't know, 24 hours on the device at once. I forget what the time limit is. What are your thoughts on uh, where we are in the TikTok conversation? Uh, do you Have you ever used TikTok? No, but my family uses it extensively. So, I mean, I've obviously seen TikTok videos because they pop up other places yeah. as well. But yeah. Uh, I like this, and this shouldn't be what this is about. This this makes zero difference in my life, but I understand how some people use it nonstop, and I I don't get it. Um, I don't get it at all. It's like watching people's practical jokes over and over and over again. I mean, it's like we're back to Dick Clark and uh, and and Ed McMahon days. But but here's the thing about this, Scott, is that when Facebook came out, everyone said, "Well, you know what? Uh, this is a you know some people said this is a huge deal." Well, Facebook, you know, it's still around and it's still a big deal. But for a lot of people, it kind of came and went. It had its time. And Twitter, you know, some people say I don't use Twitter anymore. And Snapchat, Snapchat came along, and this I, Instagram, Instagram. Well, Instagram is huge uh, right now, but mm-hmm. inevitably, all of these things have their moment, and then something else comes along. So, you know, is it is it is TikTok the end of the world? TikTok to me is more of a problem from what I'm reading, based on the stuff going on behind the scenes, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the other. But I want to go back to the first thing you said, though, about the the, the foreign interference and the lack of interest yeah. in having an inquiry or whatever. I believe this may be one of the times. I am now, maybe I am holding out too much hope. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. Jugmeet Singh to this point has been all bluster, right? He's yeah, he's done yeah, all the yeah. talking, but he has all the power yep. to force the hand of the government because he is propping up the government. Without Jugmeet Singh, there is no government. Yep. And it's always been this bizarre scenario that he stands there and shakes his fist and screams about how wrong they are. And then they say, well, are you going to do anything? He goes, well, of course not. And it's just, it's never made sense. It's been a complete, he's been a complete, like just because if he calls an election, he's never going to regain the power that he has now by holding Trudeau, uh, leveraging leveraging Trudeau. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. And so maybe I'm being wildly optimistic. Maybe I'm being totally off here. This one to me seems like it may be slightly different. And I'll just tell you why, because all the other stuff about is political. This is about another yeah. country having a say in our elections, in our democracy. And if you believe, really believe that our democracy is valuable, I don't know how you treat this like just another political scandal. And and I was talking about this on maybe on your show doing it the other day or my show. I don't even know. I lose track. But Donald Trump went through four or five years, the states did with Donald Trump there, of them pulling out their hair about Russian interference, whether it happened, whether it didn't happen, to what degree. That was the entire story. Half of the country was fully engaged and embroiled and in full belief that Russia had affected the U.S. elections. We have now the basically same story here 
And our outrage seems to have lasted for about 48 hours. And everyone said, mm. well, if you ask about this, it's racist. Well, yeah. Yeah. What do you no. think of him using that, uh, bringing an, that an, up when questioned it's by an a, outrage. a journalist? It is yeah, an I outrage. So it's it is disgusting. It is an outrage. And here's why. Because, uh, and I've said this many, many times about not just him, with other people. There is real racism in our world. There is real racism in our society that we need to do something about. And if you use this as a default defense every time you need to get people off your case, you just diminish yeah. it and you minimize it and you turn it into a joke and you make it something that it's the boy that cried wolf. So now that everything yeah. is racism, well, then nothing is racism. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. This to me is an outrageous thing. His own MPs, if they had any cojones whatsoever, some of them would say, wait a second. That's not racism, Mr. Prime Minister. That is people asking legitimate questions about our democracy. Don't diminish this by throwing out the, you can't ask or else you're a racist shield. That's wrong. It is wrong and it's ridiculous and it's unacceptable. But, but is anything going to come of it? Of course not. Because We've until always- Jagmeet Singh stands up and actually does something, it's, nothing happens. We'll leave it there. Good point. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thanks, Scott. Have a great show and be well. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Tony LeBlanc called in to say... That $10,000 bonus that Trudeau is getting, to put in perspective, is a third of a minimum wage earner's salary for the year. 